Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Today we are back. Woohoo! <laughs> we are here with our book discussion episode that I mentioned at the end of the last episode, which was our Meet the Staff with Anne. This will be very spoiler heavy on the book, obviously, since it's the book discussion. So if you don't want to know who the murderer or murderers are, <laughs> then don't listen. Yeah, go read, pause, read, and then come back. Yes. Um, <laughs> but if you don't care about that and you just want to hear our thoughts and opinions, feel free to continue listening. We appreciate any listen. I am here with Brianna. Hi. And we kind of came up with this as an ongoing series. So in, I'm not sure what month yet, we will be reading So You've Been Publicly Shamed as our next book discussion. Um, I want to put that out there now, even though I'm not entirely sure where that's going to fall in the schedule of things. Okay, so I guess we'll get started. Awesome. <laughs> so first, what was your reaction to the book? Ooh, so I have to admit, the interesting thing for me is that I've always been a book first, then movie person, but I decided to watch the movie. I had read two other Agatha Christie's. I had read Murder on the Orient Express, and and then there were none in the past, like a couple years ago, and I liked them. And then I hadn't read this one, but then when I saw the movie came out, I was like, oh, that looks cool. So we watched the movie first, and... It was weird. It was interesting. It, it inspired me a little bit, which is why we ended up talking about reading it. So then once I came to read it, I thought it was interesting because I already had the comparison point of the film and seeing how differently they did things was really interesting. I liked it. I will admit I am a Sherlock Holmes diehard. Like that was my favorite detective growing up. I read like all of the volumes of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> um, so that was my favorites. But I did think this was a fun Agatha Christie. I did not guess the murderer. So in that sense, it was like a win of a reading experience. How about you? Yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of the opposite. Um, I used to have a mini book club with my friends. Um, and then we would kind of discuss them every month. And I actually had chosen Death on the Nile. It was a whole complicated setup where we would each choose books and then vote on them and it didn't work out and that's why I died out oh no but um I had chose Death on the Nile um for that and I had read it then and I was like there's some good things to talk about here Mm -hmm. that's why I kind of put it forward for this because Agatha Christie is obviously incredibly popular Mm -hmm. Perot is obviously incredibly popular So I thought it would be a good introduction since it has a broad appeal. And then last night before today's recording of the podcast, I watched the movie. So (laughs) we did the opposite things. And I'm curious to see how that shapes our perspective. Yes. (laughs) So I thought it would be interesting to go into a historical note first. Since when you think of 1930s Britain, you don't tend to think of the Middle East necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, So I wanted to discuss how Agatha Christie kind of came about that. Oh, give me that sweet historical background, (laughs) Alyssa. I'm ready for it. Egypt was a British colony from 1882 to 1856. So a lot of British citizens would go there on holidays or travels or live there because it was cheap for them. Mm. The book itself was published in 1937. So I'm going to kind of go slightly before then and then continue through. In 1922, King Tutankhamun's tomb was discovered, which created a whole obsession 
across all of society because mm-hmm. it was the first undiscovered, unlooted tomb oh, that was really yeah. found yeah. in Egypt at that time. And it's still breaking news today whenever something sealed is found. Right. Like, even, not necessarily in Egypt, but I'm thinking of, like, the bloodline coffin underneath Notre Dame. Right. And it's always breaking news. Yes. It's always <laughs> exciting to us when we find something that's been, like, untouched yes. by history. Yes, for sure. So in terms of Agatha Christie's relationship with Egypt, in 1910, she debuted into society in Cairo because her family was facing economic difficulties. And it was cheaper to go to Cairo than to have her coming out season in England itself. Oh, so are we talking like Bridgerton level coming out? Like presenting the women to society as teenagers? Yes, and like, we are good for relationships now. Oh, cool. Like, we're open. The dating dating world is open. Okay, cool. So not just like middle school anymore. It's like (laughs) formal. Christy briefly talks about it in her autobiography, talking about like the level of flirtation that happened. All Societally appropriate flirtations. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's so funny. And then by 1914, she married Archibald Christie and had her daughter Rosalind in 1919. So after King Tut's tomb was discovered in 1922, rumors of the curse of the pharaoh that you always hear about, that really was just kind of a chain of events that had no real connection to anything (laughs) to do with a curse, started permeating society. So... Christie actually wrote a short story titled The Adventure of the Egyptian Tomb, where the curse was used as a plot device, but the real culprit, like in most of her stories, were drugs and poisons. Oh, okay, cool. So she started writing about Egypt very early. (laughs) Yeah. And then in 1926, Archibald and Agatha divorced. That's when she disappeared for the 10 days and then turned up at the resort. Yep, Doctor Who. That's how we know about that. Mm -hmm. That episode. There were big bees. Yes. Oh, imagine if there actually were. That would be terrifying. I know, right? Um, (laughs) We don't need regular ones. No. In 1928, she then traveled to the Middle East to see archaeological expeditions because she had an interest in them. And while she was on her travel, she met Leonard Woolley and his wife, Catherine. And Catherine was a massive fan of hers. So she was like, come join us. And... (laughs) So she spent time with them in Baghdad, in Ur, and then the next, the following year, Christy went back, and that's when she met Max Malowin, who would become her husband. Mm-hmm. And they were married in 1930, and she would then, for the rest of her life, essentially spend spring and fall with him on archaeological digs in Syria and Iraq, and then write her novels in summer and winter. And in 1933, her and Max took a Nile River cruise that directly inspired Death on the Nile. Oh. And they traveled on the SS Sudan, and it had originally been built for Egyptian royalty, but it started taking tourists and travelers along the Nile to stop at sites like Luxor and Aswan. And then they switched to a different boat, and they went to Karnak and Ramsey II's temple. And those are all locations that are mentioned or described in Death on the Nile because she developed the characters from people that she met on that cruise. Ah, So she became fascinated with the people she was traveling with. Yeah. And 
you can still go on the same boat and river cruise today. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> that's like such a nerdy getaway. Yeah. It's like, let's do the Agatha Christie inspired river cruise. Yes. And in addition, in the 1930s, when she was writing Death on the Nile, she stayed at the old Cataract Hotel, which is in a swan. And you could still stay there today. And I believe they have like an Agatha Christie suite that you can <gasps> request to stay in. But Ooh. you can go online and book your stay. And Wow. It's actually reasonably priced, too. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. I don't know how it works with COVID protocols and everything to travel, but yeah. it's there and it's along the Nile River. Yeah. So then Death in the Nile was published in 1937. It became a play in 44. In 71, Agatha Christie became a dame and under Queen Elizabeth II. And she died in 1976. And because we're also going to be discussing the film, the first film version of Death on the Nile was in 1978. So it has a long tradition of being depicted on screen. Wow, that's almost 50 years. Yes. Holy cow. And I know there's television episodes based on it. Right, yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Then Agatha Christie's relationship with archaeology, because it really shaped her perspective in the book, she mentions it all the time, and that's how she got more detailed and grounded descriptions of things. Yeah. she When she would go on the expeditions with Max, she would often finance them because mm. she was popular in her lifetime with all of her novels. Right. So she had the money to finance all of his trips. And then in camp... She would be in charge of overseeing supplies and operations and management of local laborers and cataloging discoveries. She would also photograph them and take photographs of the whole process. And she had a particular interest in helping restore the artifacts because she found putting the puzzle pieces together of ancient pottery fascinating. Yeah. An interesting thing about her was that she was very interested in the everyday lives of people that lived in ancient civilizations. So on one dig, they found a tombstone that had a warning about a guard dog. And it essentially said, don't stop and think, bite him. And (laughs) she found it to be the greatest thing. Wow. That is really entertaining. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And she wrote a play called Akhenaten which was about a Kenton who was an Egyptian pharaoh and the father of King Tutankhamun. And she was friends with a whole bunch of Egyptologists, Howard Carter and Stephen Glanville, and obviously her husband. So she would often bother Stephen Glanville about more information about how the Egyptians lived. So she would ask him about what the house structure would be like, what rooms were situated where, what people ate, what jobs they would have, what type of clothing, anything to give more life to the story that was realistic and grounded on the everyday person level. And she found it difficult because most of what's left over, especially in that time, were people very interested in the grand temples Mm -hmm. and more of the records and not so much the everyday things. Where today Mm -hmm. archaeologists love finding 
like garbage dumps because they give those clues. Yeah, that is cool. And that refers right back to the text then because there is one point where two of the characters are arguing. It's, is it Ferguson? He's the, the like communist. Yeah. And he's saying like, who cares about these temples? Like think of how many good common men died building that temple. Mm-hmm. And then one of the richer women is just like, but we have a nice temple and like the pyramids and stuff. Yeah. Like it's worth it. And he's like, no, but the common man matters. So that's really cool. Mm-hmm. It's like a parallel there. Yeah, so she, especially for her play, Akenton, she based descriptions and the storyline based on items found at archaeological digs. So she used stories from 4,000-year-old papyri and artifacts at the British Museum to get accurate descriptions, and then also just her first-hand experience of being at the digs. Hmm. She did consider herself an outsider to archaeology, even though she participated in the digs, and she helped kind of bring awareness of the cultures in a grounded way to the larger pop culture through her books set in the middle east yeah that makes sense for Mm -hmm. sure in terms of that i think it's really cool one of my favorite excerpts actually from this whole book is um in the edition you and i are using um what edition is this this is maro yeah yeah it is um on page 306, she talks about, from Poirot's perspective, how um, once he went to a professionally, to an archaeological expedition and learned something there. In the course of an excavation, when something comes up out of the ground, everything is cleared away very carefully all around it. You take away the loose earth and you scrape here and there with a knife until finally your object is there, all alone, ready to be drawn and photographed with no extraneous matter confusing it. That is what I have been seeking to do clear away the extraneous matter so that we can see the truth, the naked, shining truth. And I just thought it was so cool how she has him use like excavation and archaeology as like a metaphor for the detective process and how neat it is, like what you said, that she is trying to tell stories as she's like do- helping with these digs. Like she's so intrigued by the stories of the people. And it's cool how you see that archaeology then like in her work and how she's sort of comparing the two and showing how like these two very different fields actually have a lot in common and mm-hmm. it's cool to approach them like that yeah i think she viewed them both as puzzles which yes. they are yes oh we love you if you like detective no- novels whether <clears throat> writing or reading them you like puzzles mm-hmm. like that's just how it is you know so now that we sort of know the background of the like historical nature of Christie's books, um, I really wanted to talk a little bit about like the literary side. And this is where I thought it'd be fun because Alyssa brings all of the historical knowledge to the table. Um, so I wanted to bring some literary analysis here. Um, and the cool thing to me is that I had um, a classmate when I was an undergrad named Mary Pat. Hi, Mary Pat, if you're listening. Um, and she loved Agatha Christie. Like, that was one of her favorites. And when we were in our literary theory class together, she did a, like, theoretical analysis through structuralism of... Um, she did Murder on the Orient Express. But I had talked to her about it and asked her to share her research with me because she shared some really cool ideas about storytelling structure and how they play into um, what is the whodunit novel. So like Agatha Christie's novels, um, the Sherlock Holmes stories, those sort of like mysteries where you're telling the story in this different way to like sort of play the reader along and they're trying to figure it out with the detective. And I love the structure of the whodunit because it plays on two really cool literary theory concepts, um, which are called the fabula and Look at that spelling, the sujet, 
sujet. Yes, we had to learn how to say that in lit theory. <laughs> and for those that can't see the spelling of it right here, oh, yeah. it's S-Y-U-Z-H-E-T. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating spelled word. But basically, the fabula in literary theory refers to the actual events of the story, like chronologically what happened when and how it took place. And the sujet is the way that the story is told. So in a detective novel, we're never seeing the story in order because then we'd just be like seeing the crime committed and then the aftermath. Like we don't know that first piece. And often in the detective novel, the sujet is when we go back in time. So it's like we see bits of what's happening before and then we're at the after and we're trying to go back and through flashbacks or through exploration, we're going to try and piece together that background piece and sort of see what happened and how the murder was committed. So that's something I found really interesting about like classic detective stories. In addition to that, there is this interesting concept of block elements, which is where a detective fiction writer like Agatha Christie will introduce different pieces to her books. So this will happen in most of her detective novels to trip up the reader and block us from being able to solve the mystery before the reveal. Because the whole point of the excitement is like, okay, we're trying to solve the puzzle as we read, but if we solved it all easy and instantaneously, then there's no fun in reading it. Like, it's not interesting. So she uses these uh, whodunit block elements to create that suspense and that sense of mystery that has us like trying to figure it out, but not quite getting there and wanting to know what happened. So one of them that isn't as common for her, but some detective writers use is too little information. So we as the reader don't have enough information to piece together exactly what's happening. But the second one, which is way more common for Christie, is too much information. So that's the idea we see here of like, we meet all these characters and all of them have motives. And like, most of them are doing something shady and we get derailed by that. Like we see, um, for example, um, a daughter trying to cover up her mother's alcoholism and that we find out that's why she's doing something. But we're like, oh, well, why is she out on the boat at, in the middle of the night? Or what's, what's this character doing? So we get all of this extra information and the point of it is to derail us and be like, okay, we have so many avenues to check that we're like, how do we know which one is the culprit? Another of the block elements is contradictions. So that's where we see things um, like alibis that look good but aren't, which is a big one in this story because we see um, that the alibi that Simon has for why he can't have committed the murder is really like a falsified alibi. Like it's totally faked and they like pretend to shoot him at first and then he ends up not like he he can do it anyway so we see things like that where there's these little contradictions that throw us off where we think oh well it can't possibly have been this person but in reality it is and then the last one we see is the false gestalt which is when readers get like a false sense of clarity either entirely or in a part so like when we see something shady about a character and we're like oh no like they have to be the one look they were out there at this time of night no explanation it has to be them and we think that that's fine but it's not and then we find out they had another reason or they couldn't have done it for some other reason so we yeah. see these different block elements to the mystery whodunit genre very interesting with the contradictions and the false gestalt um that they're very apparent in Death on the Nile, mm -hmm. where the contradictions are just a series of cover-ups that seem impossible, but yes. they're not. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and then with the false gestalt, I feel like she does that like every chapter mm -hmm. for the 
at the whole entire end of the novel. Yes. Because first it's like, oh, what, was it Fleetwood that was with oh, yeah. the um, jewelry theft? Mm-hmm. Where it's like, it's all laid out, like, why he would have killed Lynette and how he would have done it. And it makes mm-hmm. perfect sense. And you're like, but wait, there's like 50 more pages. Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's like a nice suspense bit to be able to round out each chapter and introduce a new thought is, ah, look, a clue. And then we explore that one in the next chapter. And it's like, wait, but this can't be it for this reason. Yeah. And when I was rereading it for here, the contradictions, I feel like still kind of made me question myself. Yeah. Because like, obviously I knew that it was Simon. Jackie. Jackie. <laughs> Simon and Jackie that worked together to do the murder. Mm-hmm. But in my brain, I guess this is also a testament to Christie's writing and like narrative structure, where I was still like, but wait, I thought it was them. I don't yeah. remember how this plays out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It like still, even when you know how it's going to happen, it makes you wonder. So like for me, it was, I saw the movie, so I knew how that they were the murderers. So then when I was reading the book, I was trying to look for those clues. Mm-hmm. And it's true. She does that thing with the too much information and the contradictions where I would like, notice the clues they point out like the fact that um when louise the maid is like saying like oh if i happen to see anything Mm -hmm. it happens to be with simon in the room like things like that where there's it's just one little hint in with a bunch of other hints that could also possibly be valid but you don't know which are valid yeah (laughs) so you're just like what do i do but yeah so and that's i like that structural piece which i think is really cool but in addition to like the structure piece, we also have the characters. Mm-hmm. And I know we'll probably talk a bit definitely more about this when we talk about our themes like classism and racism. Mm-hmm. But we do have some like archetypal characters in here. So one of the common things for these sort of detective novels is to have characters that are representative of British society as a whole and compose like a little English microcosm which I found really interesting because I didn't really notice that at first because it's been a while since I had read some of her other books, but like how you see certain figures, like you see Poirot is the the main detective. He always has a helper. You tend to see like one higher class man. Um, You tend to see one kind um, and like affectionate and loving woman, like mother figure. Mm -hmm. Like we get to see all of these sort of archetypes and they all tend to be from different classes and things like that. And as like an English major nerd, it reminded me a lot of the Canterbury Tales, which I thought was really cool. And this idea, like from the Canterbury Tales, which was like this medieval story um, that took characters from all different levels of society, from like nuns to, uh, to shopkeepers to cooks and everything. And I think that's a common theme in literature. So from the Canterbury Tales in the medieval ages to the present day, these sort of stories like to bring in different people that represent different things and different types of ways of life. And the interesting thing I'm sure we'll get to talk about mm-hmm. is what does that say about Christie and what she's saying about society and how people are looking at these people mm-hmm. that they're portrayed this way. Um, so we see these sort of stock characters, for example. And then in obviously the most important of these characters is our distinctive detective. Um, And it's cool because I learned from this research through my friend, Mary Pat, uh, about the great detectives. So the idea um, it's called the Poe Conan Doyle tradition. So it goes back to this idea of a detective that's both like intuitive and has that like poetic intuition, but also is very analytical and logical. So you see both sides of it. So like Poirot appeals to us because he is both hyper logical and can like solve the crime, but he also has this like intuitive 
human nature sort of perspective. Like if you're hyperlogical, then you might not have the understanding of human nature to make some of the conclusions he makes as he solves the crime. And I just think that's a really neat quality of him. I will say, I still am a Sherlock Holmes diehard, <laughs> but I do think Hercule Poirot is a pretty cool dude. But yeah, so that's just some, some of the examples of how structure and character and things like that play in. And then in terms of symbolism, I think it's really cool, again, tying into what we'll talk about a little bit with class and race and things, is we see a lot of symbols of royalty and this idea of Lynette being like a queen of a kingdom and this sort of division that that causes because mm -hmm. Simon does not want to be ruled. And we see that gender dynamic of like, she is a queen. She has all the money, all the wealth, all the power. And Simon does not. And it's like, how does that dynamic shape things for them? And then we also see um, like this sun moon imagery, which I loved mm -hmm. in the book. They, do they even, do they mention that in the movie? No. Oh my gosh. That makes <laughs> no. me sad. Cause I was like, I couldn't remember if it was in the movie. But in the book, it's so cool. It's good. Oh my God. It's this like beautiful imagery where Jackie's like, I was the moon. And then Lynette came out and she was the sun and it blinded Simon to me. And I was like, oh my God, that's so potent. And it was so cool because mm -hmm. then they bring it back and they talk at the end about how, well, the sun went out and now the moon is back. And he, he really loved Jackie all along. And I thought that imagery was really cool. Yeah, there's a lot that can be said about both of them. And we yeah. will continue to go into that in our next episode next week um, because we realized that there was so much here <laughs> that yes. we need to split this into two episodes. Um, so if you have any questions, comments, or anything at all before next week or before you want to listen to the next episode, please email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Or feel free to call the library at 570 348-3000. Thank you. Thanks.